This is the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. Each episode, we cover important OT and ICS security topics with an eye towards standards and regulation to keep you ahead of your adversaries and your auditors. Hello, everyone, wherever you are. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Critical Assets Podcast. This is Patrick Miller, and with me today, I've got Ginger Wright. She is the Cyber Informed Engineering Program Manager at Idaho National Labs, and that's going to be our topic today. We're going to talk about cyber informed engineering. But first, uh, Ginger, tell us a little about yourself. Sure, and hello, Patrick, and hello, audience. Thank you for having me today. Um, I am a program manager at the Idaho National Laboratory, which means I have the funnest job in the whole world. Um, working at a national a national lab is like working at a buffet bar of science and technology. And you can take a little bit from one place and a little bit from another and build a really interesting career seeing lots of different sides of a scientific or technical issue. Um, and I've been able to concentrate in cybersecurity of industrial control systems. Um, and that's been when I joined the laboratory, I barely knew which end of the power cord went in the power went in the outlet. Um, but over 17 years, I've learned a lot. And that's another great thing about being at the National Lab. What you don't know, you have an opportunity to learn. So with cyber-informed engineering, um, this is a strategic effort sponsored by the Department of Energy's CSER organization. Um, and we are trying to build cybersecurity in, not just from the digital parts of our control systems and critical infrastructure out, but actually from the way that we think about engineering these systems. Um, it seems clear we can assume today that digital technology is not going away. We are not going to revert back to the electromechanical systems of our past, which were uh, protected well against cyber attacks, even if they weren't as efficient and weren't as easy to automate or control. Um, and so we are looking in cyber-informed engineering for how to make cybersecurity part of the risk decision that an engineer thinks about in the course of their daily life and work, that instead of in putting a system together based on the functionality that's expected and then passing that over to a cybersecurity expert to apply digital protections, the engineer begins thinking about the critical functions of a system and what would result if something went wrong, if an adversary could sabotage that function, and where might the engineer be able to build in engineering-based mitigations. Now, this doesn't mean we're giving up on traditional cybersecurity, but it means that we're allowing this understanding of engineering risk, which should come from overall business risk, to guide where we prioritize the performance of cybersecurity mitigations. And so we might put more cybersecurity protections, more sensing, better response capabilities to those critical functions that we depend on for 24-7 reliability. Um, and then we might let the cybersecurity general case cover the remainder. So we've been, uh, we initially released a strategy uh, the Department of Energy did in 2022. And in the past couple of years, we've been building towards the implementation of this, the recommendations of that strategy. That's awesome. I, I love the effort. I just got to say, I'm a big fan. Uh, I've seen situations where it hasn't been applied and it's frightening. And I've seen situations where it has been applied. I think more or less, not, I wouldn't say by accident, it was definitely by design, but I don't think it was the intent at the time, right? It was, there were other intentions, but I've seen in both situations and um, I could say the world would be a much better place if we had actually done this from the start everywhere uh, as part of our, our implementation. But um, you, you described something where you've got engineers and cybersecurity people working together. And it almost sounds as much as though this is a people issue as it is a, uh, I guess, an operational issue. So to do this well, we need an understanding of the critical functions that engineering systems perform. And our engineers know that. That knowledge isn't always transitioned to cybersecurity professionals. In fact, that's one way to make a really quiet room all of a sudden, is if you ask cybersecurity professionals, hey, 
hey, I need you all to tell me what is the critical function? What are the things that could result in immediate existential business risk if this system went wrong? They can tell me the data side of that equation. They understand confidentiality, integrity, and availability, but they are not always trained on safety, reliability, and functionality. And so in order to have the cybersecurity person conversant with the full ramifications of what they're trying to protect, they need that engineer to help give that additional insight. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I, I'm just wondering, does, does the, because um, I've gotten engineers and cybersecurity people in the same room, and I've just seen how it often takes a facilitator to make this dialogue, um, we'll just say more productive. <laughs> yeah. So the fun part of cyber-informed engineering, though, is when those two are talking, or however many they are, when those two camps are talking well, um, you can almost have a Janet Jackson approach. So the cybersecurity person gets to look at the engineer and say, hey, what have you done for me lately? What can you do to make sure that the cyber attack I have to protect against is right-sized versus the functionality that this system is supposed to provide. If you're worried that a robotic arm might, might be taken over by an adversary and swing and injure a human, is there a stop that could be put in place that would hamper that action from taking place? Is there something that you can do in the basic design that limits the package, the bag of risk that has to be managed on the digital side? And yeah, that's yeah. that's indeed what we're trying to discover. Awesome. Okay, so like you know, this is this has been like I said, it's, I've seen it in different places, whether it was put in by you know on purpose or not. But for um, kind of, I'm thinking about describe the evolution on this. So, has how has it evolved over the years? And I'm thinking more or less in the way of are we shifting this direction? Like, has have cyber attacks driven us to this? Or is this just kind of a really good idea that we should be doing anyway? Like, is what what are some of the new motivators behind this? So the it is it is a good idea that should be done anyway. We should be engineering our systems holistically to mitigate any risk that we can understand that is the right level of mitigation for a system. So absolutely, we should be doing it anyway. Why do it now? Uh, because especially for the energy industry, tomorrow's energy systems are going to have to be a great deal more plugged in than they ever used to be. The idea oh, yeah. of an air gap is smaller and more laughable today than it was yesterday. And tomorrow, we won't even have that concept. It won't even, it'll be a word that we we use and it will be antiquated. And so with the understanding that first, these systems will be holistically connected so that they can be orchestrated, we must put in controls that prevent what an adversary is capable of doing. Um, we also need to ensure because Tomorrow's energy systems, I, I have this quaint idea of an energy system where an asset owner carefully plans a system that they want to put into production. Um, they work and design the engineering for it. They implement it, you know, maybe aided by contractors, but it's really driven by that asset owner. Then they adopt that system and they operate it using the risk envelope that they developed. And then eventually they retire that and replace it with another system that they engineered specifically based on the lessons learned. And I'm going to pause because I think you're going to tell me I'm living in Fantasy Island. Yeah, you're definitely living in Fantasy Island. <laughs> as much as I would love to see that be the case, and you know, it is still the case. Rarely, it is still the case in a few instances. Um, yeah, but most of what they get today is a, it's a mix of pre-designed, pre-engineered, uh, somewhat modular uh, they they may or may not fit well together. They may or may not play nice together in the technology sandbox. Uh, yeah, it's a much different landscape than it used to be. And in the renewable space, I think that that change even exacerbates that oh, the yeah. entities that build these systems may or may not be um, they're, they're energy companies, but they may not have any relationship with the operator. 
Uh, the vendor may be connected to ensure functionality of the system, but they don't control the rest of the operational envelope that we think about. Um, these systems may have different lifespans where at the beginning of its life, it makes sense for one operator to own it and control it. And as it ages and needs different maintenance and has different throughput opportunities, different entities may come in. So if we can build the cyber risk envelope at the engineering level and control the most impactful consequences through engineering, as we go through these life cycle evolutions of different owners, different operators, different involved parties, there are some elements of the protections that will be deterministic. Um, and so no matter who owns it, that protection will remain in place, even if the cybersecurity budget shrinks or grows over the different owners. Okay, now you mentioned these different involved parties. How do we get this concept, not just introduced, but in some way embedded, adopted, so that, you know, it becomes like air gap, it just becomes this thing of the past, right? It's it's just now built in. So. We are going to, we are talking to vendors, we're talking to asset owners, we're talking to different players. I think there's general agreement that this is a good idea. Um, part of the challenge that we're running into, and I think my counterparts at CISA are going to run into the same thing, is that there is no vendor that completely owns the security context for a system yeah. that they create. There is no integrator that fully owns that security context. Instead, each of them has a slightly different view of how their product will be used or what the parameters ought to be, and those are inherited by the next person. So it's going to be important that for, as we think about what does a vendor do to be cyber informed, uh, what does then an integrator do to be cyber informed, like our power system, we have to orchestrate these approaches so that the vendor is putting in whatever mitigations are appropriate for their design and their understanding, transparently communing, communicating those to the next party and that party building on that. It is all complex, um, but where transparency is the, the means of communication, there's a chance that we can work these protections together. Sounds like a difficult problem. <laughs> Well, the one thing that we can ensure or guarantee is not decreasing in today's energy systems is complexity. Right. Um, and as we automate, we build in complexity. As we make do these little rules that make everything simpler, um, they make also our operational assumptions more complex and our relationships more complex. So as long as we understand that automation may make things more effective, but it doesn't make them simpler, um, I think, again, we have a chance. And as long as we're willing to have the conversation about our security contexts, what we understand them to be and what we want them to be, we have a chance to fix it. Okay. And for all of these different parties to work together, is there like an interoperability framework, a lexicon, a way for them to all be using the same words when they say these things to each other? And in theory, they will all connect together in a meaningful and useful way. So not yet, but okay. um, the first thing we were able to do this year that got us a little bit closer to that goal was release an implementation guide. Um, for the past couple of years, I've had wonderful opportunities to go talk about cyber-informed engineering, uh, but you would catch me on stage waving my hands and talking about the principles. Um, and my associate lab director, Zach Tudor, actually threatened that the next time I waved my hand, he was going to duct tape it to the desk. Um, <laughs> and he challenged me and the team that we created to write it down. If these were such wonderful principles, there should be some um, framework of practice where we wrote down, what does it mean to be cyber informed? So this implementation guide that we released in uh, September is the first iteration of that. It is imperfect, but it is filled with the kinds of questions that 
our group of volunteers and our national lab, we had both uh, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and INL collaborating with a team of hundreds of folks from, in, from industry in various places. And these were the questions we really hoped that today's infrastructure engineers could answer or would be willing to form a team to answer. So we're hoping that that begins. If we give everyone the right questions, we can then begin to help decide who answers these questions in what ways given their responsibility. So the, the good news is it's open-ended. That's also the bad news. There's not gonna be a checklist manifesto for cyber-informed engineering because these trade-offs are complex. Right, and I, just given the level of complexity, I don't think I would ever expect kind of like a checklist, but I'm just, I'm just thinking of uh, like, we'll use power systems as a classic example, where I guess that probably one of our bigger challenges moving forward, just because it's growing so fast and it is so complex as it's growing and the complexity is increasing as it's growing. So when I'm looking at like a, uh, an aggregator, um, maybe a um, ADMS platform and the utility itself and the customer, Let's just let's just maybe just take those per, per, you know parties as it stands, and there are so many others in the mix. But I'm just going to pick those for now. Um, is there a way for them to speak the same language when they're talking about these things? So when they begin to isolate the critical functions, that begins the ability to communicate. Maybe not using the same words, but about the same things. So um, we had an opportunity to do a workshop with um, NRECA's cyber team. And because this is a distribution audience, we focused on an ADMS upgrade. And so we talked about the critical functions for that ADMS upgrade. And in of course, it was ensuring that the distribution system could provide power as expected all the time, everywhere. But also one of the critical functions is that the automation of these capabilities would not result in safety impacts to operators operating the system. And so, okay, if that safety impact is uh, a critical function, we can then start to say, how does this change now for this example, we're moving from electromechanical capability to digital. How does this digital capability change the safety expectations? Will lockout, tagout serve the same function in this automated system? Are there additional controls that we need for lockout, tagout with an automated distribution management system to ensure the central office can't power a line that we're expecting is, is not powered? Or again, change our safety outlook. So once we understand what those critical functions are, then it's easier to say for the purpose of this function, how is your system ensuring that it operates the way that I expect? So maybe not the same language, but at least the same goals. Okay, and for these critical functions, is there a, a method for them to get to those critical functions, uh, like a guide to Here's your here's your guide to choosing critical functions. So right now, again, we are getting there. Um, okay. One of our objectives for this year is actually to work with ISA 99 and one of their working groups cool. to develop application profiles. And at least with these application profiles, we can extract what are the common critical functions for a, a one aspect of infrastructure, whether it's a substation or a distributed energy resource unit. And we'll dive down into some details, but we can at least give a list of critical functions that someone could think about or act on. Right now, it is um, it is best derived by going to the risk management unit of whatever business you're in and starting to understand, okay, what is our core business really? What must we always do? What must we never do? And then how does my system plug into that equation? So if I'm looking at a particular system, where could my system bring us closer to one of the negative events? How does my system play into ensuring the positive events? And so you're, you're working through it that way. But I think it would be easier also to have 
at least a derived checklist that I can say, okay, it's going to be these things. And then maybe for my business, there are a few specialty items that I would also include. Okay. Because I can think for certain infrastructure, I guess, different infrastructures, but for different infrastructure models, there would be some commonality, at least in certain forms. Yeah. And you could say, we know for these things, these are for these types of infrastructure, these things are pretty common as a default. And then of course, here's a framework to pick the other things. Because I mean, what comes to mind is the traditional like business impact assessment methods and that kind of thing. And we want okay. to make sure that whatever risk assessment methodology you use, um, if it's business risk impact, if it's process hazard analysis, if it's LOPA, whatever um, an organization might use, these questions fit into that methodology. We're not changing how you go about deriving risk, but we do want to enable you to treat that risk more holistically, starting from the engineering basis and then working all the way through to the digital protections. Okay, that's good. That was going to be one of my questions is, is this something new or will it work with all of the existing things so organizations can effectively get credit for the work that they've done in all those other areas? Well, I'd love to dive in on that a little deeper. Um, the thing that is new about this is it is not just fighting cyber with cyber. Um, we're extending into right. engineering protections. And one of the things that is less common today is being able to, I'm going to use really bad words, take credit um, or receive benefit from the administrative understanding of what it means to have put an engineering protection in place. Um, and I'll give you an example of this in a minute, but today's systems that rate our cybersecurity maturity and effectiveness do not, they measure how well we implement an organizational cybersecurity process or uh, organizational structure. They do not actually measure the thought that we put into the system design to mitigate these risks through the design process. So right. that's a gap that we're going to have to overcome and to begin to work with the entities that either from a regulatory perspective or from a performance perspective, make decisions about the effectiveness of an organization's cybersecurity policies, they've got to be able to also include the idea that if an organization put in design-based defensive mechanisms, that plays into how they're how they're creating their cybersecurity defenses. Okay, that makes sense. And when you say engineering protections, give me an example. Um, I can give me like at least a couple of examples. Let's pick like water and electric. Okay. So um, my, my water example, this is a great story of kind of a, a before and after. In the water industry, a lot of the water providers are municipal utilities, which means their budget is yes. zero and it's two or three folks and they're in charge of ensuring that you have clean and safe water and that there is cybersecurity and that the bills go out on time and the company needs a new logo all of that is done by two or three people working together, um, often elected, and that can cause its own strains. And the revenue stream is, of course, constrained by um, all of the municipal regulations that mean that you can't just suddenly make new profit. So these organizations are always looking for the most effective and most efficient ways to do things. So our friends at West Yoast, and they are a water consulting firm that's adopted cyber-informed engineering, they got a call from a municipal utility. And that utility was considering a cloud-based solution that would allow them to control remote pumping stations from the central office. And boy, if I'm municipal, this sounds like a great idea. I don't have to lose half a day's worth of people in trucks to go turn pumps on and pumps off. This is great. So West Yost led them through a cyber-informed engineering kind of thinking exercise about those consequences that we talked about. And they decided that having someone reach through this cloud-based system and turn a pump on or off remotely, it would be a pain in the neck and they'd have to then send a truck out and maybe disconnect the pumping station if they couldn't get control. But it was something that was live withable within their operational envelope. 
but they also identified that if someone reached in through this technology and was able to turn the pump on and off and on and off and on and off so quickly that they sheared some of the mechanical parts of the pump, um, that would cause a long outage window and that would be an engineering concern. And so that was where they chose to draw the line. That was a critical consequence that they needed to protect. So what they did is they, they really wanted, even though they had identified this consequence, that wasn't an, a deal breaker. They wanted to adopt the software. And of course, the vendor assured them that there were many, many appropriate protections in place that would prevent any adversary from taking control and monitoring and all the cyber bells and whistles that you could think of were there. But the water system folks um, wanted to ensure that there was some control on their side so that they had done something to prevent this. So they put a time delay relay in on each of the pumps in the pumping station that could be addressed by this. And what that time delay relay did was there would be 20 minutes between when someone could execute an on or an off command. And the pump would simply render itself so that no more input was possible until the window opened again. Now, if you were in the central office, that means you've got to make sure that you can accommodate 20 minutes of an oops window between I cut this pump off and I shouldn't have, I need to cut it back on again, but it prevents the adversary from taking that action. So that was a perfect uh, cyber informed solution. It cost them you know, 20-ish dollars per pump in the pumping station and allowed them to reclaim much more than that in operational efficiency. Um, so that's a great example of, hey, I used cyber-informed engineering to make operations in the cloud something that my company could say, we've, we've taken appropriate protections and we can do this. Now, they aren't all that easy and they aren't all that clean, but that's one great example. Okay. And what's one in the, like in the electric space? So in the electric space, um, the story that I have is interesting. If you look at how a turbine works and turbines are used in the electric space for wind, they're used for oil and natural gas functions. Um, this is a, 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 an engineering system that has many different applications. As we have digitized these turbines, more and more of the limiting controls that either keep it from vibrating or keep it from um, doing things that would wear it down over time are actually implemented digitally. And so the cyber-informed engineering moment that we've had is with one of these turbines we looked at, it had, let's say, 10 critical controls that, would, that were there to ensure that the device did not operate in a state that would ultimately degrade its function. Of those 10 critical controls, five were implemented only via code. And so for that vendor, there was the question of, all right, we know it would never happen, but let's, let's peel back our imagination. And if an adversary got inside of the firmware for this turbine, if they could peel away those five critical controls, what would then that allow them to do within the energy function? Now that vendor's done a lot of thinking and they're working that problem, but that was where beginning to think about this from a cyber informed standpoint changed what the question was. It wasn't, do we think it's likely that an adversary would do this? It, it wasn't, do we think they might have a motive? Do we think they might have the capability? It was, what have we done within our system to ensure that there are physical controls in place that prevent an adversary from taking this undue action? And where we haven't, what do we need to do around the risk envelope to ensure that we're aware of something that might challenge one of these five controls that's only implemented via firmware? Um, how are we then looking at our firmware more carefully to ensure that it really functions as we expect? All of them, the downstream things that we need to think about. And I like this because it takes it stops the adversary from being this invisible punching bag that I can make into a fearsome monster when I want to put something new in my system, or I can pretend that it's Mickey Mouse when I think I've got all my protections in order, but I get to draw the picture of the ad adversary when I bring them into the equation any way I want to. 
So cyber-informed engineering says, you know, there's going to be an adversary. We know that we're assuming that that adversary is well-resourced, or at least one of them will be, and we're not going to draw a picture of them anymore. We're going to look at our own system and our own functions and look at what we have control over and can deliver. Okay, and that that almost sounds a bit more like an impact assessment than you're almost just factoring probability out of the risk equation. Not entirely, I get that, but you're leaning much more toward the impact focus than the probability focus. Correct. And we're benefited because we have spent time and energy developing cybersecurity maturity strategies. So for those things that are below the line of consequence for cyber-informed engineering, we have all these other capabilities that are there and we can depend on. And we then can tailor those to the risk that we see for things that are above our line, then we want to invest all the way back into engineering design and all of those cybersecurity protections as well and give that the most complete, robust set of mitigations we can come up with. Okay, so I'm gonna shift a little bit. I wanna talk about cost because this is often a reason, frankly, why we end up with the system we end up with is it was the system we could afford. So how how does this impact cost? And I do know that we're looking at, uh, from a total cost of ownership perspective, we're looking at you know initial cost versus standard O&M costs versus hazard cost, um, exigent circumstance cost. So you know just with all of those things in mind, let's have that cost discussion. What is this? What does this add to my overall picture or take away? Sure. So first, it adds time that we have to spend thinking, thinking about our system design, bringing engineers, bringing contractors, bringing providers in and having uncomfortable conversations. And whenever I have an uncomfortable conversation with a provider, the price goes up, okay? Um, Because if if I pretend with that provider that I'll accept whatever they give me and there will never be a moment's trouble, that's way cheaper. So number one, just thinking about the issue is going to drive costs up. And I'll, I'll be honest about that because that is that is a truth. Um, but yeah. well, where ignoring we have... the issue is always way cheaper. <laughs> yeah, right. If we yeah. ignore it, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's, it's much less expensive if we just ignore it. Sure. So, but that, you know, we, we can also talk about what then we've hidden under the rug and what happens when we do that. Um, So, all right, we've thought more about the system. We've thought more about its design. Um, We may then discover design changes we want to make if we're fortunate enough to do this early stage. Um, But for every cyber or for every cyber consequence that we can mitigate physically, we can then, depending upon the quality of the protection that we put in place, we can actually move that so that it's on our lower defense bar. My worst, just like our water utility, they decided that their existing cyber protections were totally sufficient to allow an adversary to turn on a pump or off a pump. It just ceased to be something that they had separate controls over. And yes, they're going to do due diligence with their cloud provider. They're going to get the annual report. They're going to test the things that are in the contract. But because they have this protection, that controls how much they have to invest in that cloud provider's business and business provision mechanisms to ensure their own. They are the masters of their fate, at least as far as those pumps go. So this is a place where we begin to realize, if not cost savings, I'll say attention has a cost. Whatever I have to pay attention to as a business costs me in terms of how well I can perform the rest of my functions. So what we're trying to do is less about the monetary cost and more about the attention cost. I can now make these critical consequences a normal state of affairs for cyber protections because I own the physical pieces of of those mitigations. Okay, that helps. I'm just thinking from um, like an equipment cost, for example, you know, because we we talked about maybe the time and the effort and even modifications of design. Physical modifications to a facility are orders of magnitude more expensive than cyber modifications. Maybe. Um, I'm going to give you another example. um, And this one, okay, it is one of those accidental cyber informed mitigations, but 
it, it's beautiful and it proves that we do these as a function of our reasoning. And if we capture them and can institute them, we benefit from the protection that that offers. So again, I've got a turbine and this time uh, there it's operating in a chemical arena. And so I've got to keep the chemical that the turbine is pushing um, at the right chemical state. And so I'm treating this chemical and thus the turbine blades with something. Um, maybe it's water and I'm ensuring the water's pure. Maybe it's some other chemical, um, but I'm doing this additive process every so often. And our team talked to the turbine owner and tried to find out, well, what would what would happen if I dumped a whole lot of that chemical additive into the system all at once? If I overdope it and suddenly now the blades are dealing in a very caustic environment and the, the owner responded that that would cause a huge outage, cleaning that up, descaling everything that would happen as a result of that. It would take years of use potential off of that turbine and it would result in an outage. That would be a very, very bad day. But the owner then said, um, in this installation, that can't happen because we order the chemical that we use to dope the system in a five gallon bucket. And so we fill the vat once a month with the five gallon bucket and it siphons off of that. And five gallons is smaller than the amount that would actually cause damage. So if an adversary got in and you know, pulled the release and dumped all the chemicals out of the vat into the system, because we only do five gallons every month, we're fine. So our answer back was, hey, do you have that written in your procurement guidance and your operational guidance? And is that part of, if you did an incident response, is that something that you would check and make sure there wasn't an extra bucket, there wasn't anything that defeated that mitigation? And so the only cost this asset owner had was writing down what they had accidentally come to do anyway. Um, now, Certainly if someone changes the formulation of that chemical, or if someone says, hey boss, what if we order this in you know, 20 gallon drums instead of this five gallon bucket, that mitigation may or may not serve. But there are many ways to solve an engineering challenge. Some of them are very expensive, some of them aren't. Um, and so it gives us a chance to be creative about the mitigations we choose. Again, I've got this whole collection of cybersecurity protections that I can use. And I we borrow a lot of safety metaphors in cyber-informed engineering. And so yeah. if you're thinking about the Swiss cheese model, I've got a whole Dagwood sandwich of cybersecurity mitigations. So I can depend on those, but I also want to add where I can effective engineering practice. Okay, and you did touch on safety, so I did want to. I want to just take the opportunity to, to kind of divert into that. There are a lot of existing safety principles that this borrows. I mean, is this what? What are the corollaries? Where does it deviate? How how is this different than safety, for example, just engineering safety? So first, the things that we borrow, um, culture is king in safety yes. and culture is king in cybersecurity and cyber-informed engineering. And so some of the loss in efficiency we see in having engineers design a system and cybersecurity experts secure it is that we've lost that cultural link between these two entities. Um, we borrow uh, the, the, let's see, the hierarchy of controls. Um, so if you're used to physical uh, controls being the highest, I can eliminate a hazard, I can substitute a hazard, I can create engineering protections like fences, um, I can create rules, administrative controls, don't do that twice or you're fired, or I can create PPE, hey, I'm going to have you have these hazardous knives, but I'm going to issue you cut safe gloves. We borrow from that to think about cyber the engineering protections that might prevent a cyber attack. I may not be able to substitute a vulnerable technology with one that is invulnerable, but um, can I put an engineering control in place that limits how that vulnerability might be applied? That's a great example of the hierarchy of control. So we borrowed that from the safety culture. Um, we borrowed 
um, all of the ideas that once we begin to look at the consequences, we have methods of process analysis that allow us to derive what mitigations could put it, it could come into place. And we borrow, once we put engineering-based mitigations in place, we can borrow from the mechanical assessments that are already done. So if I choose to put a mechanical stop in place, how long will that last? How long will that be effective? So those are all things that we borrowed from our safety understanding. And in fact, you know, you might imagine this is kind of how we got there. We had a bunch of people yeah. sitting around a table saying, why don't we do cybersecurity like we do safety? And what would what, what would we need to think about differently if we were going to do this? So, and you had another part to your question that I got excited about the safety part and forgot. Oh no. <laughs> well, if you remember, we'll we'll get back to it. Okay. Back in. While we're doing that, I did want to, since we talked about maybe the differences between cyber-informed engineering and safety, what about the differences between cyber-informed engineering and cybersecurity, like pure pure play? So I'm gonna with cybersecurity, I am completely in frame with my adversary. I am operating on ultimately the same system that my adversary has access to. So in many ways, I'm playing a game of chess. They have the option, they have the potential of seeing the same game board that I can see. They can operate on the same controls that I have. Um, and I don't have anything that is hidden or that is mine. Um, with cyber-informed engineering, when I move into having both physical and logical protections, there are some parts of my system that are out of frame from my adversary. My adversary might learn about the, the stop that I put in place or the time delay relay, but their ability to affect that with remote action is limited. Um, and so what we're trying to do is create a space where some parts of the game board aren't accessible to the adversary. Again, I, I don't want to do away with cyber protections. We need those. That's a part of the whole Swiss cheese um, that protects us. But I want to try to get a few things in the list that the adversary has to do a lot more work in order to get to. Uh, one of the analogs that we use is if you think about locks, uh, the way that you rate the effectiveness of a lock is measured in terms of time. Someone who decides they're going to get through a lock is going to get through it uh, no matter what. They might drill it out. They might use explosives. They're going to get through that lock. So any regular lock is measured in terms of the minutes that it will withstand a concerted adversary attack. We don't tend to measure our cybersecurity protections that way, but when we think about cyber-informed engineering, we're putting that idea in place. If an adversary can defeat my you know, firewall because there's something going on with Cisco's firmware, and so that gives them an automatic entry. Um, if they can move laterally across my network because my protections there aren't adequate, there is something that I've got in place that will take them a whole lot of skull sweat to figure out how did I design this physical mitigation? How can they put a resource in place that could defeat it? And what is the actual cost of doing that compared to their objective? So kind of like a lock, hopefully we're putting enough resources in place that we've designed protections so that we we defeat the adversary's willingness to go after this effect. Right. I've seen even uh, safes, for example, are rated in time, tools, and materials. And, it's, yes. and it was a rating for whether or not you could get insurance because you had to show that you could respond, detect and respond within that time frame. Yeah. And that, actually, that's, that's a really important part of cyber-informed engineering. Um, a lot of the times we talk about it, and because we're national laboratories, we stay on the theoretical and the ethereal more than probably we should. Um, but there is a planned response part of cyber-informed engineering. We want to ensure that when we're designing a system, we start to think even before it arrives, what that incident response might look like, what roles from our organization might be involved, what information needs to be exchanged, what different priorities are there. If I've got a government entity who wants to take custody of the PLC that's being attacked, if I've got 
um, a, my operational entity that says, no, you can't take it out because we still have to run our business in my response plan. How have I adjudicated that so that I know what my response is? And when I'm planning for resilience, how have I planned for adverse operating modes that involve cyber attack? Do I understand how to move into a place where I've got less digital systems going um, but I've got less uh, risk envelope that I have to maintain. What are the places where I could trade out an automated function with maybe a less desirable function, but one that will work for a short amount of time? Right. And that's a lot of the, I guess, kind of the kernel of benefit you get out of this is it does take away a lot of those concerns or you know, interdependencies with other systems. If you do this type of analysis and you get to this state where you've implemented uh, you can effectively withstand the attack and you can continue. You can continue to, I might not be in an optimal state, but you can continue to operate. Well, and that you know you can, and that if yeah. you're if you're working towards your plan effectively, your staff are aware that there's a manual of procedures. They've done exercises where they've actually tried this out um, and they've, they've actually done it. And uh, Tim Roxy and I went back and forth early in the methodology because I was trying to think about the, the chaos monkey idea. So in an ideal system on any random time day, you might have an exercise that you go into where you have to prove that you can do something. And we were thinking about that from the nuclear side. So if there's one place that the chaos monkey is not ever going to be allowed to go, it is our nuclear infrastructure. But with Tim Roxy, we even came up with the idea of an index card based exercise. So maybe somewhere in my office, I have a whole exercise script, but on a Friday at three o'clock, I might deliver to a single operator an index card that has just a small piece of, here is the fact of the situation you find yourself in. Please act out this response. Show me how you would do it. Show me the questioning and the information that you would go through, but don't push any buttons. But at least then I can collect information about how that would be done from the real operating staff at the console. Yeah, tabletop it out, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where is this going? Right. Where, where, where do you see this going? Um, not just from the work that you've done now and, you know, Caesar's intentions, but if you were to have like your, you know, Ginger's crystal ball and you think this is going to go this direction. But, you know, but I'm, I ask that also factoring in things like AI, for example, um, you know, the rollout of ubiquitous and inexpensive and maybe foreign made, you know, IIoT or XOT. So where, where is this all going and how does this all fit together? So my goal is, and again, this is the first project I've worked at at the laboratory where I get to do my lab work almost in public view. Um, my goal is to ensure that we write down as much as we can from the laboratory about cyber-informed engineering and that we walk hand-in-hand hand with industry and that we try to give this away as quickly as we can with the support of the federal side, because we're leaning into something that we don't have muscle memory on how to do. So the federal investment is helping us build that muscle memory, but the labs are hoping that for all of the uh, engineering consultants out there, for all of the product owners, for anyone who's creating a design tool that might be used for critical infrastructure, for vendors, for asset owners, there is a place where the adoption of cyber-informed engineering will benefit them. And we want to put as much out to help all of these entities begin to adopt this and use it. Um, and we're willing to help. We're willing to take it part of the way to the finish line and hope that industry is on the other side on the adoption curve. Okay. And I know there are some resources out there. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes if you'll provide that for me. And just so we can get a highlight of those, are there resources for, I assume there's resources for the asset owner types that own the infrastructure components. Are there also resources for the vendors trying to make these products, for example, um, or the organizations doing uh, the design elements? Are there, are there custom tailored uh, guidance elements or uh, you know useful components for them? So hopefully they are useful. There are not custom tailored 
guidance yet. We have an implementation okay. guide where, again, we asked our lots of questions. Um, those could be tailored to specific infrastructures. We're starting to work with ISA, trying to think about how to integrate cyber-informed engineering with 62443. Um, 62443 very much deals with the digital side of things, but it's it's formulated so that it sounds like with some additions in thinking and some additions in practice, we could extend it a little bit left into the engineering design, and that might go that way. Um, we are working this year to develop a number of tools around benefits quantification, um, some specific tools for applying cyber-informed engineering to clean energy, since that's a fast arising application area. And so we're adding to the tools that are available. But again, if there's a specialty group that wants to adopt it to their particular uh, energy interest or critical infrastructure interest, it doesn't have to just be energy. We would be glad to help and provide them the materials that they need. Okay, that's good. That's useful. And we'll, like I said, we'll include a, a link to all the resources that are there. And for those that haven't, you should definitely uh, at least read you know, Andy and Sarah's book. There are tons of other good resources about this. So before we go, I want to ask one final question. If you could only do two things, because I, I would love to be optimistic and say three, but there are many organizations out there that are going to see three and they're going to go, I, I got two. But if you could just do two things in the cyber-informed engineering playbook, right? What are two things that really you're kind of like the must-dos, just if you could only pick two? So if I could only pick two, the first is do the consequence analysis, get the right people in the room to understand what are the critical functions for the systems and the infrastructure that they support um, and identify with that who, who are the roles and responsibilities who have a place in ensuring that function exists. So that's first. Um, the second, and this gets into the more ethereal side, but the crucial side, is create some avenues where the procurement team, the engineering team, the cybersecurity team are talking. And I don't mean something isolated and away from the work idea like a pizza party or something like that. Create an exercise that actually brings these roles together, executing their function so that they have a chance to get to know each other, but more deeply see how that function plays in. Um, I can't recommend strongly enough the GridX exercise that's coming up soon, um, but there can be company-derived versions of that. You can do a GridX on the small, um, but having your team exercising together is one of the best ways to get them to imagine each other's roles and responsibilities and know how these pieces fit together. Once they've done that exercise, it's 100% more likely they'll pick up the phone and say, hey, Sam in procurement, I'm about to write some requirements. What happens if I send you this requirement phrased this way? Are you going to know to check this vendor out for all of these potential issues that we could face? How should I write that into the procurement? So those are my two, consequence determination and then exercises that get parts of the company that don't normally talk but would in an emergency so that they have an avenue to talk more regularly. I think those are fantastic recommendations. Excellent, awesome. Thank you, thank you so much, Ginger. I've learned a lot and I appreciate it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go read more and I'm really happy to get to share this with the, the listeners. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, thank your audience. Thank you for this opportunity. And um, if you have any questions, the website for cyber-informed engineering is at inl.gov slash C-I-E. Oh, that's easy. Okay. Yeah, and we'll include as many show notes as I can. I like to include lots of links and stuff for the resources. Fantastic. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. You can find us on all your favorite podcast sources, so please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues. Check out our other content, such as blogs, news, and more at AmpereSec.com. That's A-M-P-E-R-E-S-E-C.com. Ampere Industrial Security, securing your world.